Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you bring us together like this regularly to fellowship and to sing songs and to hear the proclamation of your word that through all these things we might worship you. And I pray that that's what our hearts would do this morning, like Dwight was talking about, that we would love you and praise you and rest in you and trust you and just give you glory through all of these different things. Um, Father, I ask that you would bless the, the teaching of your word, that it would minister to your people, and that you would pierce our hearts with truth and also encourage our hearts with your word. And so work and move and minister to us in this time ahead. In Christ's name, amen. So I would love for you to open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 34. We've been going through the book of Genesis, and today we are going to deal with what I think is a kind of an ethically difficult passage. I think it's a story where not a single character is praiseworthy. And I think we get stories like this from time to time in the Old Testament because one of the points of the Old Testament is to help us see that there is something terribly wrong with humanity. And maybe you already know that because you live life without sticking your head in a hole in the ground from week to week. But the Old Testament helps us understand that we need a Savior who's going to wipe away the tears of tragedy, who's going to right the wrongs of injustice, who's going to restore dignity back to this disfigured humanity that we are a part of. And stories like this one, I think, leave us eager and longing for God to do that work, to bring salvation. And man, humanity is just so broken, isn't it? Like, don't you just feel that deep down in your soul that we desperately need a Savior? That there is something deeply wrong with this world? Um, I read a good book recently about sin, and the title is just Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And isn't that a great way to describe sin and the brokenness of our world? Well, let's read, pick up in chapter 34. We'll take this just a little bit at a time. In verse 1, it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. So the conflict begins immediately. It doesn't require us to get very deep in the chapter before things get intense. Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, goes out to interact socially with the women of the land to introduce herself to them and ends up in the process getting raped by Shechem, who is a king of the land. And although the text doesn't use the word rape, I spent a little bit of time looking at the different Hebrew words that are in the text here, and uh, it's undeniable that rape is a good word to describe Shechem's treatment of Dinah. He seizes her, he lays with her, he humiliates her. This is pretty obviously not a consensual arrangement. She's violated, she's abused. It's tragic, and it's heartbreaking. And so right from the beginning, we see problems manifesting 
in the characters in the text. Dinah actually is not without her own fault in the sense that she breaks from cultural constraints. She leaves her father's house unaccompanied, something that was not typically done in this time. And you can see why. Because she places herself in danger and as a result, she's taken advantage of. Shechem, for his part in this, is a man who comes from a long line of Canaanite pagans. Canaanite perverts that go all the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember that when we dealt with that in Genesis months ago. This man has no reservation about seeing something, seizing it, taking it. In this case, a young woman and abusing her, raping her. And although Jacob is not yet mentioned in this story, as you're going to see momentarily, it's not out of line to conclude from his prior treatment of his family that maybe one of the motivations behind his daughter as she leaves his house is that Dinah has grown up under neglect. And that neglect has led her to make a decision that's unwise, to go look for human connection outside of her father's house. Now before we move on, I, I want to just draw from this a little application that I, I want to warn you about the kinds of social connections that you choose to make as a Christian. And I would say maybe more pressingly, the kinds of social connections that you as a Christian parent permit your children to engage in while they are under your stewardship. I think if Jacob cared a little bit more about his daughter, this would have been a very easily preventable scenario. But I think he's passive and he doesn't care. And I think you're going to see that again momentarily. Now, this might be a little bit of a silly application to draw, but I'm going to draw it anyway. And I think what I want to say to you at this point is that you should not permit your children to carry smartphones and have unfettered access to the world. I think that's a pretty similar correlation here. And again, I realize maybe that's a bit of a jump, and I'm, I'm sort of telling you something the Bible doesn't necessarily command that you shouldn't do. So I guess you have some freedom in this area, but let me try and persuade you. Think about it. Dinah wants to make some friends, so she heads out to where the people are, and she does that unaccompanied. And your teenage daughter wants to make some friends. Where can she go to meet them? To the place where all the girls are on TikTok and Facebook and Instagram. She asks you for a cell phone so that she can go and interact with these friends, these people unsupervised. And I think I want to say to you, don't passively let your daughters and your sons out into this world unsupervised? Isn't it becoming increasingly clear that this culture wants to devour our children? A few years ago, I had a man tell me that he was having issues with his 13-year-old daughter because she had developed an addiction to pornography. 13-year-old daughter. And he told me that this happened because she begged him for a smartphone so that she could connect with her friends and he gave it to her. And as a result, she would stay up late in her room after her parents had gone to bed with the door closed, surfing the internet, swiping this way and that way, scrolling through social media, connecting with people. And one thing led to another 
And as a 13-year-old girl, she became addicted to pornography because of that cell phone. And what started as an innocent desire to go out and see the women of the land, if you will, turned into her innocence being taken from her. And I think all of that could be traced back to this fact that her parents permitted her to do something that they should have been more proactive to protect her from. So this terrible thing happens to Dinah, and it is terrible. And we're told that Shechem becomes so enamored with this girl that he thinks he's fallen in love. He seeks his father's power to arrange this marriage for them. Pick up in verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So Jacob gets word concerning what has happened. And I don't think he gets word from his daughter Dinah. Because as you're going to see when we get down to verse 26, she seems to be held captive in Shechem's house. So she's not coming home and reporting this. She's still missing. And I think Jacob's response is grotesquely passive. He's not outraged that his daughter has been mistreated. The first sentence of verse 5, I think, is a bit like a shrug. Jacob hears his daughter was defiled and... Uh, I can tell you that's not how I would respond to that news. I imagine other fathers in the room know what I'm referring to. In contrast, then, we see Dinah's daughters, when they hear, they are enraged exclaiming in verse 7 that Shechem has done an outrageous thing. Such a thing must not be done. Now, this is before the nation of Israel and the Mosaic law that would govern the behavior of the people of Israel. But we know from Deuteronomy 22 and also Exodus 22 that God's law forbid rape among the people of Israel. But isn't it obvious that such a thing should not be done? Some things are self-evident. And the evil of rape is one of those things. It is self-evidently evil. For a man to seize a woman and force himself upon her is a demonstrable offense against the conscience. And Dinah's brothers, I think, are right to be outraged. And we might expect then that their outrage would only grow as they listen to the appeal of Hamor and Shechem in verses 8 through 12 because Hamor comes to Jacob's family asking for permission that his son Shechem would be able to wed Dinah. 
but they make no apology for how the relationship has already progressed, for the way that this woman was treated. There's no repentance. Instead, they come with this offer that the families could intermix in a kind of covenant. But who in their right mind would want in-laws like Shechem after he's already raped their sister? Shechem and Hamor, they're not the virtuous kind of men that I think you would be eager to marry your daughter off to, that you would be eager to develop a close family relationship with. And I think they know that, which is why they try desperately to sort of seal the deal with a bunch of bargains, offerings, some generous compensation for this wedding. Shechem says in verse 12, I'll give you whatever you say to me. Let's read again in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters and wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of, this, of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised and all who went out of the gate of his city. So rather than some bride price of gold or livestock, the sons of Jacob tell Shechem that the only way that they would be willing to agree to this marriage arrangement to their sister Dinah is if Shechem and all the men of his city agree to be circumcised, to become like the sons of Abraham. And the narrator tells us in verse 13 that they're hatching a plot. They're deceiving Shechem. And as we're going to see, the plot is very clever, but it's also deeply profane. These sons of Jacob are not respecting the commandment that was given to Abraham in the covenant of circumcision. They must know the meaning of circumcision that's been passed down to them from Abraham. It is the sign of God's covenant faithfulness between his people and God himself. It's not merely physical. It's deeply spiritual in the history of Israel. And yet Jacob's sons are casting off the intensely spiritual nature of circumcision in order to use it as a trap to ensnare Shechem and Hamor and their people. Which I would say 
using God's command to ensnare people is an outrageous thing that must not be done. So you can see the irony. And there's some further irony because as for Shechem, it's, it's kind of grotesque irony. It was his penis that was used to violate Dinah and now it will be his penis that leads to his destruction as he becomes circumcised and in the pain of that surgery ends up being murdered. It's almost Shakespearean in its irony, really. And so the origin of his sin also becomes the origin of his demise. His unfettered desire is going to bring about his death. And that's the nature of sin. We've talked about this quite a bit as we've made our way through Genesis. It always leads to ruin. It looks good when you first gaze upon it, and then you come to find out that it destroys you. Well, Hamor and Shechem are eager to seal the deal. They definitely think that they're getting the better end of this bargain. So they go back to their city. They pitch this offer to the men of their city. But they're not completely honest in the way that they speak of it, are they? They fail to acknowledge that they're already kind of in trouble because Shechem raped the daughter of Jacob. And he still has her, I think, locked up at home. They fail to mention that Dinah is even part of this agreement at all. They keep that part quiet. And instead, they appeal to the greed of their neighbors. They paint a picture of wealth and prosperity. If these two people groups are to bring their lives together, we will be enriched as a result of this deal. And even as these men are deceiving the other men of the city, the narrator already tells us that they themselves have been deceived. But they must have been great salesmen because the pitch works. Would have been a sort of interesting conversation to listen in on a little bit more than the text gives us. But all the fighting men of the city say, let's do it. And now things escalate quite quickly. Look at verse 25. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and they went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and all their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and they plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute so Simeon and Levi set the whole thing up as a trap and while all the men of Shechem city are recovering from the circumcision surgery the two brothers go throughout the city and they butcher all of the able-bodied men all the men actually in retribution for Shechem's crime Hamor and Shechem they also meet their demise by the sword and it appears that Dinah is rescued out of their house. And then after the extraction of their sister, when Simeon and Levi flee with her, the other sons of Jacob come in 
and take advantage of the opportunity, plundering all of the flocks and the wealth of the city, including taking captive, probably as slaves, all of the women and the children. And yet when Jacob hears about it, all he has to say is, your actions have brought me trouble because now my life might be in danger. How come you weren't thinking about the consequence for me? To which his sons respond, I think, in a very sneering, shaming way. Should Shechem treat our sister like a prostitute? And in this moment, it it looks to me like Jacob cares almost nothing for his daughter. He cares only for his own safety, maybe for the safety of his wider family, but certainly he shows a sincere lack of regard for his daughter. Whereas the brothers at least are concerned with the honor of their sister, although they take the retribution way too far. Now I think it's clear why at the outset I said there's really no good characters in this story, in this chapter, are they? Jacob comes across as utterly callous, cold, self-interested. His sons are cruel and deceiving and vindictive. They slaughter innocents in retribution for what's done to their sister. Dinah, I think, appears rebellious when she leaves her father's house unattended. At the very least, she's unwise and foolish. Shechem is a man who can't control his most basic physical desires. He confuses lust with love. Hamor is selfish and greedy. He's eager to get his hands on just a few more goats and a few more pieces of silver. And the people of Shechem are easily manipulated by their desire for riches, more prosperity, more wealth. Everyone, I think, is corrupt in some way. And I want to point out, if you've been going with us through the book of Genesis, that there are a few scenes throughout this narrative where God seems to kind of disappear. God is absent from the story. He doesn't show up in this chapter. And I think that's probably, this isn't the case in every chapter of Genesis where God is not present, but I think in this case it's because God disapproves of all of this. He pretty much wants nothing to do with any of it. These are entirely the actions of man apart from God, but we'll circle back to God's part in the story in a few minutes when I close. That's the scene. That's the characters. So let me maybe offer a little bit more commentary on where this intersects with our own lives. There's no way, again, that you can read this story and not feel like Man, something is terribly wrong here. It's a story of rape, revenge, bad fathers, greed, bloodshed, and lies. And the Bible actually contains a lot of stories like this, believe it or not, that show us the awful depravity that man is capable of now that rebellion has separated man from God. The wicked corruption of the human heart is a constant theme in Scripture. But I've been thinking a bit lately about the secular worldview that permeates our American culture. So I want to touch on this. We live in a society that really has no moral or ethical foundation at all. And we can trace the modern crumbling of the morals of our current societal situation, I think, back to two men. Now, this might be a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's actually pretty fair and 
If you want to argue about it more in person, I would love an opportunity to do that. But for now, you're a captive audience, and so you'll have to hear what I have to say about it. I think it's fair. First, you've got Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin convinced the modern world, the modern mind, that man is nothing more than a highly evolved animal. And he claimed that the human species achieves higher evolution through the process of natural selection and survival of the fittest. The weak die off or they're hunted down and they're devoured. The strong survive. The species progresses when the strong pass on their DNA to their progeny. And that's how greater forms of evolutionary achievement are brought about, as the strong prevail against the weak. Below the surface of the modern mind, this is the foundation of modern thinking apart from God. And what I mean by that is, if you were to ask the typical person on the street, can you explain how Darwinian evolution has influenced your thinking, they would say, I don't know what you're talking about. But I assure you that underneath their thinking, this is what permeates. So let's engage in a thought experiment and pretend for a moment that Darwin's theory of evolution, his explanation of morality in that theory is actually correct. If we were to accept that framework, then don't you see, we should actually celebrate Shechem's rape of Dinah. Because Shechem is the most honored of his father's house. He is a king in the land. He's strong and powerful. He's simply attempting to pass on his genetic DNA to his progeny that they might be even more strong and more powerful for the good of the species. Evolutionary morality cannot condemn rape because it's just the actions of the strong doing what they have power to do. Furthermore, in this evolutionary framework, we should celebrate the slaughter of Shechem and all of his people because if the sons of Jacob were smart enough to deceive these men and trick them and then go in and wipe them out, then it's a good thing that the weak and the stupid are culled from the herd in order that those who are intelligent and strong might pass on their genetic code for the sake of the herd. So evolutionary morality cannot condemn genocide either because it's merely survival of the fittest and of course from a christian perspective i hope that you feel this as well this is grotesque this is absolutely intolerable but bear with me for a moment because i'm going somewhere next we add to darwin's theory of evolution that produced this morality further the relativism of the philosopher of frederick nietzsche He's famous for saying God is dead. But what he meant by that, if that is that there, if there is no God, then there are consequences to that truth. If there is no God, then there is no absolute morality. No absolute truth. No absolute right or wrong. No absolute good. Without the absolute anchor of God to give man an objective source of what is good and right and true, a source beyond man himself and what he thinks or feels, then mankind is simply adrift in a sea of moral relativism. What is good? Whatever you feel like. In the philosophical framework that Nietzsche gave to the modern mind, what is right? 
is whatever you can get away with. What is good is whatever you have the power to do. So if the modern secular mind was to be honest, it would have to say that if you can rape a woman and you can get away with it, good for you. If that's what makes you feel good, good for you. If you can lie and you can cheat to get ahead, you're perfectly justified to do that. If you can kill your enemy and as a result grow stronger in the process, then that action is moral because you have the power to do it. And again, this is grotesque, and I repudiate it in the strongest of terms as your pastor. But the point that I'm making is that the modern secular person has no grounds whatsoever to say that any of the actions of any of the people in this story were wrong or were evil or were bad. They simply were. And because people got away with it, good for them. But isn't it obvious that that can't be true? Isn't it so obvious? Like I said earlier, some things are self-evident, aren't they? And it is self-evident that man becomes a hideous beast when the only thing that drives him is lust and power and greed and revenge. Friends, don't you see that in denying the existence of God, the world has lost its mind? Claiming to be wise, humanity has become defined by foolishness. And the truth is, the people who are proponents of this, they actually know. The culture knows that this secular worldview is foolish, but they suppress the truth. How can I say that? How can I be so sure? The reason we can be sure they know it's foolish is because I don't know a single person who would want to step into this story that we read here in Genesis 34 and live in a world where women are raped because people can do it. A world where fathers are selfish. A world where men are not motivated by virtue, but they're just motivated by greed and lust. A world where innocent people are indiscriminately slaughtered in a cycle of endless revenge. I don't know a single person who would want to live in a world like that. Do you? And so it's apparent they know it's foolishness. But this, this, my friends, is why the kingdom of God is such a beautiful thing. Why it's such an important thing. Because it invites people into a world of goodness and beauty and truth. Grounded in the very goodness and beauty and truth of God himself who made these things and has a purpose for them, that they might glorify him and honor him. That's a world where women are respected and they're adorned with the beauty of humility because they're made in the image of God. Christianity invites people into a world where fathers are tender towards their children and they're selfless towards their children because God is tender and God is self-sacrificial. The kingdom of God is a place where wrongs are forgiven where reconciliation is pursued when wrongs are done. The kingdom of God is a world where people don't take the lives of others, but instead they freely give their lives for the sake of others. It's a world where innocence is guarded, where greed and lust are replaced by generosity and self-control. The kingdom of God is a world where truth is treasured and kindness is praised. 
But where men suppress the truth of God and where they establish their own rules and morals, sin begets sin in ever greater measure, like we see in this passage from Genesis 34. So understand, the Christian life is not merely a set of beliefs that we adhere to. It is a whole, complete way of living your life under the wisdom of God and the teachings of Jesus. It's absolutely contrary to the way of this world. It's the path of goodness, truth, beauty, which leads to the restoration of mankind to be like God in his holiness and perfection. And I hope you understand that one day the whole modern worldview will come crumbling down because it is godless and it is vile. And in the smoldering ashes of that tragic heap, bright and solid and firm and tall will be the gentle, gracious, truth-filled way of Jesus as a better way, an eternal way. And we know this not only because the Bible tells us that that will happen in the future, it promises and guarantees that to us, but also because we can look back at all the prior man-made systems and we can see that they too have crumbled. Empires fell, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And the saints of God press on building the kingdom of God through quiet lives of holiness and trust in Jesus. Now, having said all of that, I want to close with a very hard set of truths for you to consider. And I warn you, this is hard. Um, I guess if you're a regular around Maricopa Springs, you'd be like, oh, it's par for the course. But if you're new, then um, this might be hard. But the difficulty does not diminish the truth. The difficulty of something does not diminish the truth of it. I mentioned earlier this passage does not mention God, but we know from the fullness of God's revelation in Scripture what God thinks or feels about this, that God would disapprove of all of the actions of these characters. I could say a lot on why that's the case. I could offer you a lengthy discourse explaining that. But for the sake of time, I'll summarize it by just pointing to the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God is active in the hearts of men, Men bear the fruit of God's good righteousness. Hopefully you know these fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If the characters in this story were operating under the direction and power of the Spirit, then the fruit of God's nature, like peace and gentleness and self-control and goodness, it would have led to a very different outcome in the circumstances of this story. But instead of acting in a way that reflects God, they act in a way that is typical of man when man is ruled by sin rather than ruled by the Spirit of God. But I think we can even go one step further, okay? Jacob's child, in this case Dinah, but Jacob's child is treated with criminal behavior by Shechem. And when Jacob refuses to do anything about it, his sons take matters into their own hands. What they did is evil because they repaid evil with evil. It's an unjust response to evil. But Jacob's response is also an unjust response to evil, isn't it? To do nothing in the face of evil is also unjust. 
And so what about God? Where is God in this story? Couldn't we ask the question, how would God respond if his child was treated with criminal behavior? Well, we get a glimpse of how God responds when Jesus tells the parable that we read in Matthew chapter 21. In the parable of the wicked tenants, we're told about a man who plants a vineyard and he goes away on a journey and he gives the vineyard in trust to some men who lease it from him. And he comes in time to ask for his percentage of the crop that is rightfully his in leasing the property to them. And the tenants of that property take the messengers of the landowner and they treat them criminally. They beat them, they stone them, they kill some of them. So eventually the landowner says, well, I'll send them my son. Surely the authority of my own son will lead them to do what is right and honorable. And instead the tenants kill the son. They dump his body outside of the vineyard and they assume that they now are the property owners themselves. And so Jesus asks the question, what will that father do to the people who treated his child with such criminal wickedness? That's my paraphrase. And the crowd responds correctly. The owner of the vineyard will put those miserable wretches to death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their due season. The parable reveals that God is not passive in the face of evil like Jacob was. Now, I want you to understand that parable is about specifically the management of the leaders of Israel concerning God's blessing to that people. It is specifically about the Jews. But that does not change the premise that God despises wickedness and evil when men rebel against him. The reason why Christ was crucified is because you are a sinner. It is your criminal behavior that put the Son of God on the cross. Don't you see that in your sin you are like Shechem, engaged in criminal behavior against the Son of God? That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the fact of the matter is that God disapproves of the actions of all humanity and each individual person like me in it. We have all mistreated the Son of God because it was our sin that cried out, crucify Him. And it, and it was our willful rebellion that nailed him to the cross. And you need to understand that it is good and just for God to destroy every ounce of evil lurking in the human heart, even if that means in the process that God must destroy people who nurture that evil in their heart with no repentance. That is a part of the totality of what God's word teaches us. But... There's good news. Oh, there is such wonderfully good news. In the face of this terrible wrath that God has towards man for his sin, there is good news. God is not like you. 
And he's not like me. We are vindictive. We are self-righteous. We explain away the evil that we do. We think we deserve better. But God is not like man. And in that regard, God is full of mercy and kindness and grace. Because God cares not only for his divine son, God cares for all of the sons and daughters that he has made in his image. God offers to accept then the sacrificial death of his own son, Jesus Christ, as a substitutionary payment for the punishment that you deserve for the sins that you have committed against this God. God has made a way for you to escape from his wrath by coming under the blood sacrifice of his own son, Jesus. So that on the cross, Jesus died to suffer the wrath of God in your place. And it is absolutely essential that when we give the Christian message that is good news, that we help people understand what God has saved us from. God has not merely saved you from yourself. He's not merely saved you from other people or saved you from death. But first and most importantly, Jesus saved us from God. Jesus saved you from God. So that by acknowledging your offense before God and repenting of your sin, God allows for the burden of your wickedness to be placed upon his own son who pays for it. And that indeed is good news. Because if we were to read the story of mankind, if we were to read the story of your life, like we could read the story of Jacob and his sons in Genesis 34, it wouldn't read any different than this story. Be honest. Maybe it's not laid out on a page for everybody to read, but it's there in your heart lurking, and you know it. Every person deserves the wages of their sin, which is God's wrath. But by grace, through faith in Christ, we escape what we deserve. God exchanges what Christ earned for what we could never earn. Our sin for the favor of God. God exchanges the death of our disobedience for the eternal life of Christ. And God removes the rebellious heart that is naturally within us because of the fall. Preventing us from storing up more wrath. And in its place he gives us a heart of loving obedience to God so that we don't have to live like the unsavory characters of this story from Genesis 34. Praise God for that. Let's pray. God, this is good news, and I pray that we would see it that way. I pray that our self-righteousness would be so deeply offended that it would come crumbling down. Lord, that in light of the truth that we are wicked sinners, we would not conjure up our inner defense attorney to argue that that's not true. We would not compare ourselves to other people to show that other people are wicked and therefore we're justified. I pray, God, that in light of the truth that we are wicked sinners, that we would fall on our faces and say, woe is me, wretched man that I am. Who will save me? And that we would look to Christ and we would see that God has saved us in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And we would rejoice in that good news. And it would draw us deeply into the virtue of Christ himself, truth 
and goodness and beauty. Oh God, would you do that work to save us and redeem us and draw us ever onward to greater holiness for Christ's sake. Amen.